Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, band. Thanks for leading us this morning. And good morning, everybody. So it's, uh, of course, the year 2020, which means that uh, this year, my wife Katie and I will be celebrating our 18th wedding anniversary, which I'm excited about. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's not really why I said that, but thank you anyway. I appreciate appreciate it. But because 2020, it also marks the 20th anniversary of one of the most nerve-wracking moments in my entire life, one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done in my entire life, and that is proposing marriage to my wife. Uh, Christmas 2000 was the year, was the day. It was Christmas Day, and uh, any of you guys who have ever done this before, who have ever proposed uh, to to somebody, you know that it is one of the most nerve-wracking things you'll ever experience in your life. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. And even if you know that the person you're proposing to is going to say yes, even if you're fully convinced of that, you realize that there is something going on in that moment that has been anticipated in some cases maybe for 15 or 20 years or even more. Because this young woman, this beautiful woman whom you're proposing to, has been thinking about this moment probably since she was about five years old. And I certainly, in that moment, at Christmas 2000, Christmas Day, I felt the weight of those 15 to 20 years of anticipation as I dropped to a knee and asked my wonderful wife Katie to marry me that night. Now, here's one of the other crazy things I did that made the situation really even worse. I got the bright idea that it'd be a good idea to do this in front of our families, right? And so we had Christmas dinner over at my parents' house, invited her parents, her grandparents, her brothers, like my sister, my parents. We had a ton of people there. And after dinner, I proposed to her right there, like in the family room. And so there's a lot of pressure in that moment, right? But you realize one of the reasons there's so much pressure is that it's, it's a special moment that she's been thinking about. And if you do it right, like I was thinking in the moment, like if I do it right, then she's going to be wowed and she's going to cry, right? Like cry in a good way, cry the good happy tears. And that was my goal. That's what I was after. It didn't happen. And there's a whole thing about that. But anyway, <laughs> but it's great. We, have it. we actually got it on video. My, my sister videoed it. I'm not showing you that video, right? <laughs> Showed you the Christmas ones, but I'm not showing you this one for a variety of reasons. But it was, it, was, it was a huge moment. And I remember, but of all of that, the thing that I remember the most 20 years later was actually shopping for the engagement ring. And I had never shopped for an engagement ring before. I was like 21 years old at the time. And so I thought to myself, well, I'll just go to the mall. There's a lot of jewelry places in the mall. And walk into the first jewelry place I see in there. Don't ever buy an engagement ring from the mall. Um... <laughs> I'm just saying. But I did. I went into the very first jewelry store I saw, and I sat down with the jewelry salesman, and I said to him, look, this is my budget, and I'd like the biggest ring I could possibly buy, because I had in mind, like, I want to wow her. I want to see her just cry because she sees how wonderful this ring is, right? And, uh, and not knowing anything about diamonds, he said, he said okay, come, come right over here. I want to show you this ring. And so I saw this diamond. I was like, man, I didn't realize I could afford a diamond like this. And I don't know what it is about jewelry stores, but the lighting that's in there, every diamond looks beautiful, right? And so I'm looking at this thing, I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. Are you sure this is the price? I can afford this. So I buy it right away, I take it home, and I remember opening it in my apartment for the first time, and I was upset because I thought they had given me the wrong ring. I looked at it, and I was like, this doesn't look anything like the ring, the diamond that I saw in the store. What is wrong with this thing? It's yellow, it's clouded, there's little black stuff inside of it. What is this? 
Now, fortunately, that jewelry store had a 30-day guarantee, a 30-day return policy. <laughs> and so as soon as I could, I made my way back to the mall to exchange that thing. But it, it, it kind of launched me on this journey to discover more about diamonds and research. And one thing I found out is that there are actually like four C's to diamonds. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's the carat, which of course is the size, but there's also color, cut, or there's also color, cut, and clarity, right? And the color, cut, and clarity are actually much more important than the carat size, right? Because it's the cut, it's the color, and the clarity that gives the diamond its distinctive fire, its brilliance. A diamond that's clear, that has a nice clear color to it, and that's cut well, reflects well the, what we call what's known as the fire that comes off of that diamond. And so that in the light, as you shift the facets of that diamond, you see different aspects of the fire of a beautiful stone that's firing back at you, and that's what makes a diamond beautiful. That's what makes a diamond expensive as well. So when I got the diamond the second time, it wasn't as big, but it certainly marked those other areas very well. Now, I tell you that because as we are entering into the second week of our study in the book of Hosea called The One Thing, we're talking about the love of God through this, through this book and through this series. And I'm convinced that one of the things that Hosea does, if we can say that this, the diamond in this story is like the love of God, one of the things that the book of Hosea does, what God says to us through this, through this book, is that it turns the facets of this beautiful diamond in such a way that we can see God's love coming at us from all different directions. And that the fire that comes off those different perspectives and the different facets of this beautiful diamond comes to us in sometimes unusual and unexpected ways, but it's always beautiful. Last week, when we opened up to chapter 1, we saw that uh, one of the things that comes to us from the very beginning is this calling on Hosea's life, but also these words that are kind of like judgment words, judgment oracles. We're going to see that again as we get to Hosea chapter 2 as well. But in all of this, one thing that we've been talking about and one thing that we focused our first week on is that everything that we see here, whether it's judgment or whether it's God saving us, or even God's creation activity, all of these things are different facets of God's love. What I mean by that is this, is that, I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but have you ever wondered why God created? We know that when we open the Bible, the first thing that we see in the book of Genesis is that God created everything that we see. He created everything even that we don't see that exists. The heavens and the earth, principalities and powers, everything. Yet, why does he create? I don't know if you've ever considered that. The self-existent, perfect God, triune in nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally, why did he create? I don't think we would say that he created because he was lacking anything. We're told that he's self-existent from eternity. He lacks nothing. And so he didn't create because he needed something. As if he needed more glory, he's already glorious in and of himself, fully glorious. He didn't create because he was lonely. I mean, Father, Son, Spirit, one of the things we realize is that they've existed in relationship. The triune God had existed in relationship, perfect relationship from eternity past and eternity forward. So what is it? Why did God create? What was his motivation? Well, I think if we take the scriptures seriously, one thing we realize is that God simply created because he loved. It was an overflow of his love to create. Now, if we can realize that, that God created out of his love, then that puts everything else in perspective because if he loves in creation, then everything else he does flows from that original design and that original purpose. 
And so whether it's him saving us and redeeming us, which we're going to look at today, or whether it's even in his judgment of things, we can see a reflection of his love as we turn the facet of that beautiful diamond. So God's creation, his saving, his judging activity all comes from his love. Now, one of the things is, uh, if we can get our, if we have our series graphic up there, I didn't give you the heads up last time, but let's see what we got. There we go. So you see our series graphic here. One of the things this series graphic was designed to do, you can see all these angles that are especially present there in that heart. And we did this this way because it, it, it looks cool and modern and all that stuff. But also, because these facets, these angles, are designed to remind us of all the different ways that we see God's love coming to us through the book of Hosea. So every time you look at that series graphic, let it remind you throughout the series that these are different ways that we see God's love. As we turn it, we see all kinds of different ways in which God loves us. So that being said, let's continue this morning as we get in back into the book of Hosea. And I want to give you a quick review of what we saw in chapter 1 last week in case you weren't here or uh, in case you uh, just forgot and need a quick refresher. When we started in the book of Hosea, the one thing that we see is that Hosea is a man who is called from God, by God to be an Old Testament prophet. And by that we mean that he's given the assignment and the calling to speak God's word to God's people at a particular time in their history. Hosea's ministry was around the time of about 740 to 750 B.C. He spoke to the northern kingdom. At this point in Israel's history, Israel's divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Hosea was a northern kingdom prophet, and so he was called by God to go speak to the northern kingdom. At that time, the northern kingdom king was a man by the name of Jeroboam II, who was a notoriously bad king. He led Israel astray in a lot of different ways. And so God calls Hosea to go to the people of the northern kingdom and to King Jeroboam and to speak his word to them, calling them back to covenant faithfulness. We talked about Old Testament prophets being covenant enforcers. Part of their, a main part of their calling is to call the people back to the original covenant that was established under Moses that established the relational commitments that God made to Israel and Israel made back to God. So that prophets would come along, and as God sent prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament, they would come along and say, Israel, this is how you have failed to measure up to your side of the covenant. Now here is what God will do unless you turn around. And in some cases, by this point, it was almost too late. So we know that later on, judgment came about 25 years after Hosea's ministry. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, and then 150 years after that, let's say 150, 25 years after Hosea's ministry, and then 150 years after that, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And so as, as we get into this, though, one of the things that is remarkable about and unique about the book of Hosea is God told Hosea, not only are you going to speak my words to my people, but you're going to live out this living object lesson. You're going to live out the literal message of what I want to communicate to them. And how was he supposed to do that? Well, through the closest relationships, the most intimate relationships in his life, his family relationships, namely his marriage and his relationship with the kids who were in his household. God said, I'm going to use those relationships to publicly picture and represent my relationship with Israel. So Hosea was supposed to serve as God. Gomer, who is Hosea's wife, is supposed to represent Israel. And in particular, his marriage relationship was going to represent Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. So as a result, God says to Hosea, you're going to marry a woman who is going to commit adultery on you time and time again. She is going to cheat on you. She's going to sleep with other men. And then as part of this, as if this wasn't bad enough, she actually gets impregnated 
um, by these men and has two children that Hosea now has to raise. At least two of the three are probably not his. And so he's got to raise them as a constant reminder of her unfaithfulness. And in all of this, as we talked about last week, there's this mess that's kind of going on in Hosea's family. And Hosea, I'm sure, feels it. He's a man. He's a person just like you and me. He would feel those same emotions that any of us would feel if we found ourselves in that situation. But, as we talked about as well, it's meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to be scandalous because it's meant to show us how our sin and disobedience breaks things and makes them a mess and makes them ugly and uncomfortable. And yet, in the midst of this, the one thing that we talked about last week as well that we'll see again this week is that this mess, this brokenness doesn't have the final say. That God and His powerful redeeming love for us is what carries us through this entire book. And we're going to see how His grace and mercy shows up even as early as this morning as we look at the next chapters here, uh, chapters 2 and 3. So, with that being said, let's start here actually at the end of chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. God says this to Israel through the prophet Hosea. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, one of the things that made the first part of chapter 1 so difficult is that God said to Hosea, look, you're going to name your three kids these things. Jezreel, if we can have that slide that shows their names again. Jezreel. The second one born is going to be named No Mercy, Loruhama, and the third one is going to be named Not My People. And each of these names of these kids are supposed to represent what Israel has lost by breaking their covenant relationship with God. Jezreel God sows in the first part of chapter 1. We're meant to understand that God sows judgment, and so he predicts that there will be a, a, an army that comes and a, a nation that comes and conquers the northern kingdom, which of course we said does happen 25 years later. And then he says, there will be no mercy as a result of you breaking the covenant. It was God's mercy that upheld the relationship with Israel. So without his mercy, there was nothing left of his relationship and their relationship with him. And then finally, not my people. Israel was established as a nation under their identity as God's people, as Yahweh's people. And so if they were not God's people, they were no one. That was their identity. So these are heartbreaking terms that are supposed to be the kids' names, by the way. Yet look at this. Look what happens here in verse 10. All of this. One of the most powerful little words in the Bible is the word yet or the word but, especially when it's joined with God, like yet God or but God. We see that happen right here in verse 10. It says yet. This is the reality, and this is what's coming, and judgment will come in the form of Assyria, yet God still promises his grace and mercy will come. He says, yet, where it was once said that God sows Jezreel, judgment, God will now sow mercy. So that as we get to verse 1 in chapter 2, now you are not my people because you are my people. And to your sisters who, who have not received mercy, you will receive mercy. 
Now, I want us to see something here because this is critically important as well. First of all, this is in future tense. God is saying this is something that will come. It'll come after a period of judgment, but it will come at some point in the future. And then also God says, this is by my doing alone. That key, that key verse at the end of chapter 1 that refers to the time of the day of Jezreel is the day of God's sowing. In other words, this is what God will do alone. There's another clue here. God says they will be like the sand of the seashore. What does this remind us of? If you know the story of Abraham and you know the book of Genesis, you remember that God promised to Abraham from the very beginning, your descendants, I'm going to raise up from you a great nation. They will be blessed to be a blessing, and they will be my people, and your descendants will be as many as the sand, the grains of sand in the seashore. In other words, he says, I'm the one who will do this. God's hearkening all the way back to his original promise to Abraham and saying, I will be faithful to that to carry it all the way forward. In other words, it's not dependent upon you, Israel, to get this right. It's not dependent upon anyone but me to be faithful to my own promises, and that's why I am doing this, because I love you and I am faithful to what I promised I would do. So then we continue here in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, where we run into another one of these judgment oracles. And in case you're wondering to this point, if you haven't read through the book of Hosea and you're wondering to yourself, why is it that God is so upset with Israel? What is it that they have done wrong? We keep talking about disobedience and sin, but what exactly does that look like? This is God's case against Israel, where he tells them exactly this is what you have done. In case you missed it or in case we need to understand, it starts here in verse 2 and it continues through the first part of the chapter. And it says this. This is God's case against Israel. Plead with your mother and plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she, has conceived, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them, and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than... Then is now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished her on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all of her myrrh, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, on which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, which she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So this is a really interesting twist of literary device that's used here in the prophet Hosea that communicates to us two things that are going on. First of all, this is the reality of Hosea's relationship with Gomer, but at the same time, of course, it represents 
God's case against Israel spiritually. And what's happening is this. It seems like Hosea goes to the kids that are in the household, and it seems like Gomer's been gone for a long time. She's gone beyond just kind of leaving at night and going and sleeping with other men and coming back to the house. At some point, she's, she left, and she didn't come back, and she hasn't been back home for a long time. And despite Hosea's pleading, she hasn't come back and come back into his house and become his wife again. So she says to his children, basically, to the children that are there, to her children, go and plead with your mother. Maybe she'll listen to you and maybe she'll come back to me. Which, you know at this point, if the father's having to appeal to the children to get involved, that it's gone badly. And so she could be who knows where. And this is where God says, look, at the same time, this is exactly how Israel has acted towards me. Where Gomer is committing physical adultery, where Gomer is out sleeping with untold men outside of the house in her relationship, Israel is committing spiritual adultery against me. And how is she doing that? She is there with her lovers. Just as Gomer is with her lovers physically, Israel has been with these lovers spiritually. And who are these lovers? They're the Baals. And the Baals represent really the pagan gods. It's kind of a catch-all phrase that represents all the pagan gods that were in the area. Where Israel was being tempted to worship these other gods, just like they were worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And when we talk about idolatry, maybe you've seen this before in the Old Testament, you've wondered to yourself, what exactly was so tempting about idolatry? What was so tempting about worshiping these gods who are represented as statues in the ancient world? Because have you seen these guys? I brought a picture of one of them. Like, this guy right here. Okay. Is there anything, when you look at that picture, is there anything that tempts you to worship this statue? No. And I, I don't think Israel was tempted just by the side of the statue either. I don't think it was just like, wow, I really love that golden dunce cap on that, and, and I'm awed and, and, and really moved by how beautiful and wonderful and awesome this thing is, and I'm going to worship it. I don't think that that was Israel's temptation. I think what was going on here is that they recognized this statue represented a God that they believed was powerful who would provide all the things that they wanted. And what were the things that they wanted? Well, things that all human beings want. Things like food and money and prosperity and safety and security and health and family and fertility and, 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 and all these things. You name it. And in the ancient world, they had gods for almost every aspect of life and every piece of the world. When I, when I say that, uh, I mean, here's a sampling of this. When I say almost everything, there were gods for door hinges in the ancient world. There were gods for toilets. There was a god of the toilets. And there was a god of weeding. In other words, like when you have weeds in your yard, there was a god that was supposed to handle that, right? I mean, imagine how lazy the guy was that invented the god of weeding, right? He walks out and sees weeds in his yard, and he's like, I don't want to pull those weeds. I don't want to spray Roundup on those weeds. I'm just going to invent a god that is going to make sure I get rid of those weeds as soon as I worship him. When I say that there was everything, they invented a God for almost everything. And Israel played right into that. And this is why God is so upset, because God said, I will provide everything you need. I will give you everything you need when you need it, Israel. Don't go to those other gods. And yet they decided at some point, you know what? It's great that Yahweh is going to provide for us. But what happens if he doesn't provide in the way that we want him to, the time that we want him to? and exactly the things we want them to. We need kind of a plan B here. And so they began to incorporate all of these other gods as a plan B in case Yahweh doesn't come through. And you can see the spiritual idolatry that happens there. It's an aspect of faith and trust. They got to a place where actually at this point, 
Those gods aren't even plan B. They're plan A along with Yahweh. They just lined them all up along with Yahweh. These are the gods who will provide for me. And as God says in here, look, you don't realize I was the one providing the oil and the wine and the flax and all of those things for you. Those gods are false. They will let you down. They will not fulfill what I have promised I would give you. And I think as we line this up, when you pull that back, hopefully you can see the parallels to our own lives today. That just because there aren't little men made of wood or metal that people bow at anymore doesn't mean that there isn't, that we don't face the temptation of idolatry in our own lives. Because every temptation that we still face actually comes from doubting that God's instruction, God's words, God's ways are always better. It often comes from a place of doubting whether or not God hears me, whether or not God is going to deliver, whether or not God is going to provide when I want Him to provide, and how I want Him to provide it for me. And so we feel justified to jump to these other things that function as smaller G gods to satisfy the thing that we think that we need. Tim Keller says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That's deep. But here's one thing I want you to notice as that quote is still up there. Meaning, value, significance, security, all things that God promised Israel. And yet, for whatever reason, it didn't come in the way they wanted it, and they turned to other things. The same thing happens in our faith life with God. Can we trust Him that He is the one to provide these things for us? Because as He says here, not only does it break our relationship, not only does it cause disobedience in our lives and sin and brokenness, but, and harm our relationship with God, but those things will ultimately let us down. Whatever thing we turn to in the place of God will ultimately let us down. Little g-gods always do. Let's continue here in chapter 2. In the midst of all this, God, who has an airtight case against Israel, says this in verse 14. Another great, another great word in the Bible, therefore. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is God talking about Israel. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say not my people, you are, to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. As I read this, it reminds me of a story that I read a while back. Uh, author by the name of Sky Jatani wrote a book called With, and he was talking about a story in that book when he served at Wheaton College, which if you're not familiar with Wheaton College, is a well-known evangelical school in, in the Chicago area. It's often been called the Harvard of evangelical colleges. 
not sure exactly why, maybe just because they're kind of arrogant, I don't know, but, they, they, uh, but, but they, they say, at least, that some of the best theological students and the brightest students go to Wheaton College, and I guess that's why they call it the Harvard of Evangelical Christian Schools. But uh, Sky's talking about a, a time where he was leading a small group Bible study with 12 of these brightest, best and brightest students in this Bible study, in this small group. These were some of the people who were training to be pastors and missionaries and even, even professors in theology. And they'd been in church probably their entire lives. And he's sitting down and he's talking with them. And he sits down one day and says, you know what? I'm just going to ask him this one question as we start out this Bible study together. And he says to them this. How, what is the primary thing that God feels towards you when you sin? He goes around the circle. He says, well, I want each of you to answer this question. He goes around the circle. Starts getting answers like, well, God's disappointed. He's angry. He's brokenhearted. Goes all the way around the circle. It gets back to Sky, and he says, you guys have been in church your whole life. You're theology students who are getting ready to go on to be pastors, and you don't know the answer. None of you gave the right answer to that question. Because the way that God primarily feels about you when you are sinning is that he loves you. Certainly he's angry at the sin. Certainly all these things come out. But the primary thing is that God loves you. And look, as I read something like this, look, what, if you read this, this is like a love poem. I mean, this is like high quality, almost like it's better than Shakespeare stuff because I'm going to say God's word is better than Shakespeare. But this is like love poem stuff. In the midst of this case that comes against Israel, God switches gears and says basically, I will allure her with tender words. I will go to her, even when she has her back to me and is not acknowledging me. I'm not going to say, hey, you come meet me halfway. He says, I will go to her and allure her and bring her back. I will speak sweet words to her and I will love her in, and I will take her to the wilderness and love her again. Why the wilderness? Two reasons. One's explained in the immediate context that the wilderness, especially the wilderness of Egypt, was the first place that God and Israel started their covenant relationship. God came to them on Mount Sinai after rescuing them from Egypt, and that's when they became his people and he became their God. The covenant under Moses was established there, and he says, I will take you back to that place and love you again. We'll renew our wedding vows, so to speak, and I will love you again. And then he says, I'll do it in the wilderness. And the wilderness, of course, was a place, as we saw the wilderness in, in the Exodus, uh, a place where there's no resources unless resources are sown or provided there. God rained manna from heaven and brought water out of a rock just so the Israelites could survive in the wilderness. God says to them, I will sow prosperity in the midst of your brokenness, which is what wilderness symbolized. I will sow a new relationship, a new covenant. Now, this language of new covenant is probably something that maybe, you know, Israel and Hosea certainly didn't really fully understand what God was getting at. But as we get to the New Testament, and as we're on this side of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, we realize exactly what is being talked about here. God says there will be a new covenant that will come, and it even picks up steam as we look at Hosea 3 here in just a moment. A new covenant that will come that will provide this way to me, where I will come to you and I will seek you out, and I will allure you, and I will rescue you with sweet words, the sweet words of the gospel of Jesus. Hosea 3, verse 1 says this. 
This is God going back to Hosea, basically saying this, Hosea, this is what I have just said, and now you're going to live this out. Verse 1, this message of love and redemption. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a letesh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear of the Lord and fear to the Lord and to the goodness in the latter days. Now, after getting this message across to Israel, God then just says, repeats this similar calling from the very front of the book, from the very beginning of the book. He says, go back to this woman, Gomer, who is a woman who you've loved and yet has left your house and go find her, wherever she may be. You haven't seen her. She's, She's basically annulled the marriage by her behavior, but go and seek her and go and find her. And so you can almost imagine as Hosea goes really from brothel to brothel to brothel searching for his wife because at this point she's turned to prostitution to support herself because she's left the one who was providing for her, Hosea, her husband, and now she's got to provide for herself. And we know this is the case because then when Hosea finds her, he actually has to buy her back because there's a debt incurred there. He has to buy her freedom from brothel to brothel to brothel, finally finds her and brings her home. This woman who has not loved him, this woman who has brought nothing but heartache into his life, God says, go and do this. And why? Because this represents what I do for my people and how I love them. And it's an unconditional love that despite what she has done, there are no conditions to this. Gomer is not required to perform in any way or to contribute anything. It is purely of Hosea. And in order for Hosea to love her, he has to pay a cost to bring her home. Now, in case it's not clear at this point, New Covenant, paying a cost to bring her home, this is a direct representation and a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus paid the price to bring us home. Literally in the spiritual, maybe in the spiritual brothels or literally in the brothel, wherever it may be, he has gone to those places and he goes to those places to bring us home at cost to himself not based on our performance, not based on whether we meet him halfway, simply because of his seeking and redeeming love. You know, the word redeem means to buy back. He has bought us back. And this is how he has done it. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 both say this phrase. Paul says, you were bought with a price. And Ephesians 1 tells us what that price is. Ephesians 1.7 reminds us that the redemption was made through the blood of Jesus. That's how the price was paid. That's how he buys us back. So when we say, as we said last week, that God's love is stronger and deeper and more powerful than your sin, than your wandering, than your disobedience, it's not because God looks at it and says, well, I feel a certain affection to you, so let's just wash all those things away and start over. No, it's because it's demonstrated on the cross. That that powerful love of God has redeemed us and saved us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That the day of Jezreel has arrived. 
that where judgment was sown, now grace and mercy is sown. That day that God promised so many years ago through the prophet Hosea has arrived. We know it as the gospel, as the new covenant of Jesus. And it makes a way for redemption. For us who are spiritually or were spiritually in the desperate position of Gomer, where we realized our idols have failed us, left us empty, where our sin has destroyed our souls and destroyed our relationships and broken the world around us, we have the hope of redeeming love. That God meets us in that place, speaks to us tenderly the words of the gospel to call us back to him. As I close this morning, this sermon, I titled this sermon, The Perfect Love of God, which is a direct reflection on what we see from 1 John chapter 4 when we are told that perfect love casts out fear. A good definition of, uh, of perfect is complete, lacking nothing. Another way we could define it is that it is as good as it could possibly get. John says the reason that God's love is perfect is because it casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. The reason that God's love is perfect and that it casts out judgment, is, or it casts out fear of judgment is because it is unconditional. God's love is powerful because it is unconditional. We are called to simply receive it by faith. It's not dependent upon what you and I do. It's not dependent on our performance before or after the fact. It is simply God's love received by faith. It is unconditional and it is perfect. And that's why it casts out fear. Listen to this assurance from the New Testament which reflects the love of God through Jesus. And I think what you'll see here is how it perfectly reflects the language of Hosea. In one case, it actually directly refers to Hosea. But it's now talked about in the present tense instead of the future tense. 1 Peter 2 Verse, 12, verse 10 says this, Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Romans 9, 25 and 26, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Look, I have been in church ministry for almost 20 years now in various roles in church ministry, and I've been preaching and teaching almost as long as that. And during that time, I've had myriads of questions that people have asked me, theological questions, questions about something I've taught or something that I've said in a sermon, questions about scripture that we've read, about like the meaning of this word and the meaning of that phrase and the historical background, all those things. The questions about theology that are related to some deep, deeper issues of Christian belief. I've had questions about, that's one, and the other side is I've had tons of questions about like manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That's what people, you know, people love talking about those kinds of things. And don't get me wrong, I love talking about all that. I love theology as much as anybody, and so when I say this, don't take it as like you can't ask me any more theological questions, because I love to talk about those things. But as I was thinking about this this week, in 20 years of being asked all those kinds of questions, I don't think I can ever remember one person coming up to me and saying, look, I, 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 don't, I really want to understand more of the love of God. Can you help me understand how I can know how much God loves me? Can you help me understand what it really means to love my neighbor or to love God back? I can't think of, in fact, I can't think offhand of really anyone who has come and asked me just that question. 
And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because we think it's too basic, we think it's not important, or we think we've got it figured out. But I think if we think it's not important and we think we've got it figured out, we're wrong on both accounts. I said earlier, I said last week, when we get into this series, one of the things that you realize is you start understanding the love of God, one of the first realizations that you start to come to is there's a whole lot I still don't understand about the love of God. And it's almost like the more and more I understand, the less and less I really truly understand. It's paradoxical in that way. This is the depth of the love of God. And sometimes I wonder that what if the church was more concerned about understanding God's love and how we can love others instead of what we know theologically and how we can experience the Holy Spirit and a myriad of other things that we feel like we're so preoccupied by. Because as I look at Corinthians, I see Paul saying to the Corinthians they were making the same mistake. You're so concerned about the knowledge and you're so concerned about these experiences of the Holy Spirit, but you've completely lost the point. You're to love. And the way you love is by understanding more deeply how much you are loved by God in Jesus Christ. So the Corinthians were concerned about those things and Paul said they were completely missing the point. I wonder sometimes if we're doing the same thing. So what I want to do in response this morning, I want to ask the band to come back and join, join me on stage here. And our response time is going to be really simple this morning. It'll be relatively short, just a couple of minutes. But I just want to ask you this question. And I want to ask you just to talk to God about this. And maybe this is a prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe it's a prayer of confession. Maybe it's a prayer of celebration. Maybe it's just a silent prayer of just sitting there and thinking about it. Maybe it's a time of meditation. We're also going to have our prayer partners up here during this time. So prayer partners, if you would make your way over to the response stations, if you'd like to pray with somebody outside of your seat. But here's the thing. Here's here's what I want you to consider. What are you afraid of today? What is it that you need God's perfect love to cast out? Not just fear of judgment, but insecurity, of pain, of shame, of guilt, of doubt. Whatever other things in this world may cause us to fear. What do you need to remember about God's perfect love for you that will cast out fear for you this morning? What are you afraid of? And I want to remind you of these things. Do you need to be reminded of your identity in Jesus? Again, Romans 9.25, if we can put the scripture up on on the screen, this will be up during the prayer time. Romans 9.25, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Do you need to be reminded, do you need to know that you are forgiven? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2.10. Do you need to be reminded ultimately that you are loved by God? Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. I'm going to pray for us. And after I'm done, I want to encourage you just to spend some time talking to the Lord. Whatever that fuels you towards. Again, maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's confession, maybe it's just an opportunity just to sit and to soak in the fact that God loves me, and to see how deep that can go in your heart and in your mind. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, and I pray that these next two minutes as we spend talking to you would just be an opportunity for children to talk to their father. Their loving Heavenly Father. Lord, I I don't know what it is that causes the callousness of our hearts sometimes that prevents us from fully understanding and recognizing our need for your love. I don't know if it's experiences in our life in which love has let us down. I don't know if it's an inability to really sit and to think and to allow you to love us. 
I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm sure it's different for each of us here in this room, but Spirit, would you break through the callousness in our hearts? And would you inform our minds so that we would swim deeply in the love of God, that the deep love of God that is designed to overwhelm us would truly overwhelm us in this moment? Spirit, would you do that in us as we spend time with you over the next couple minutes? In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. May you know those things are true about God's love for you. That you are fully known because He loved you when He created you. He knows you inside and out. He knit you together in your mother's womb, as the psalmist says. And you are fully loved in His redeeming love for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. May you cling to those things this week and live and abide in the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.